Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have a show to remember for the ages for you today. Bacha Akhar Sargon is back with us to kick off the week. Bacha, what are we getting into? We have some great stuff today. Our rising panel is going to weigh in on the four former police officers who were recently charged in the death of Breonna Taylor. And Jeff Charles is going to talk to us about the impact that inflation is having on black Americans. And yesterday, the Senate passed a huge package to combat climate change, lower the cost of health care, and supposedly reduce inflation. <laughs> I have some questions about that. But first, we <laughs> want to talk about one specific amendment in the bill that's caused some friction between Democrats and GOP in terms of their talking points, at least. And that's the IRS. The agency is, is poised to hire 87,000 new agents. And while Democrats say they're going after the 1%, well, Republicans are refuting that, saying the agency will target Target low earners and the middle class. Well, I'll tell you one thing where I think we can agree it will make things better is the IRS is going to have resources it needs to go after the highest income Americans that are cheating on their taxes right now. Hiring 86,000 more IRS agents, if that makes you feel better, you've missed a lot. They're coming after waitresses, Uber drivers, and everybody else to collect more taxes. So uh, if, if you think growing the IRS is good for you, you're wrong. In stark opposition to what Senator Graham said, The New York Times is lauding the agency's new $80 billion funding, which is nearly six times what the agency's current budget is. However, they deny it will impact the working class. Democrat Senator Ben Cardin echoed the message while on Fox News. Take a listen. There, can you understand how 87,000 new IRS agents would scare the heck out of millions of Americans? Millions of Americans aren't going to be impacted by that other than getting better service from the IRS, having their telephone answered, getting the questions they need in order to comply with our tax laws. The auditing is going to be focused on those of high income, the large corporations, etc. So uh, there's no reason to be fearful. And if you have paid your taxes and if you comply with our laws, you should want to make sure everyone else does that. Hmm. Nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. Where have we heard that before? <laughs> so you won't hear this on mainstream news. The new rules will allow the IRS to track small business transactions on Venmo, PayPal, Airbnb. Up until now, anyone with less than $20,000 in total payments, they didn't get a form from the IRS at all and could avoid paying taxes on the platform if you fell in that range. But now small business will be forced to report gross payments of more than $600 directly to the Internal Revenue Service. So it's, uh, it's uh, you know, I think it's very concerning, Bacha. I'm curious for your take. Uh, obviously, I'm no fan of the tax police. I think I've said to defund them entirely on this show. That might be a little extreme. But the idea that this will only, you know, target um, wealthier or higher income people is it's not what I expect. And also that, right, that whole line you just hear, well, there's nothing to worry about. If you pay your taxes and do everything right, like people who it's so confusing that well-meaning people um, inadvertently, do, you know, do break the tax laws somehow all the time, not because they have something to hide or they're trying to be deceptive, but because it's difficult and it's confusing and the government knows what you owe, but then they make you calculate it for some reason. And it's just gotten so complicated over the years. So well-meaning people get something. I mean, this is true of all laws. Well-meaning people break laws because there's so many darn laws on our books. Um, some of them aren't enforced anymore, but some of them are. If you get in trouble or disfavor the government, you can get in trouble. So it's, it's uh, <laughs> the more enforcement of it will result, in my view, there's no way it can't, of, uh, of 
in, of innocent people inadvertently becoming entangled with the law. So I hear that. Um, at the same time, we know that uh, the IRS does audit low-income people at a higher rate than upper-income people. We know that because it is easier to audit people who don't have means as opposed to somebody who's worth billions. Therefore, that's where you know a higher rate of audits happen, and that is shameful. You know, it is shameful because right now, contrary to what Senator Graham said, they are right now going after what he called. Uber drivers and waitresses at a higher rate than they are billionaires. And that is a real problem. And so to me, I look at this and I say, the thing I'm on the lookout for is how are they going to make sure that this money is spent on the people who are evading you know, taxes on purpose, who have means to do so from an intentional point of view, as opposed to people who are lower income, who are making those mistakes? Because I do think that that is important to go after people who are doing it intentionally with you know, the backing of their billions and billions of dollars. Well, and you and I will probably disagree on this, but I also need to point out that even going after the, you know, it sounds all well and good, and, and yeah, probably even our, our viewers are going to be on your side of this one, not mine, but uh, you know, going after uh, the wealthy, okay, fine, the corporations, you know, there, if you... Uh, increase their tax burden or you you know you you put them through more punishment many of those costs are just costs they then pass on to their uh, to the consumers right so then we end up it's not like I, I think it's a little naive to just say, you know, oh, well, well we're just going to you know, have more tax enforcement of those people. Well, those people have vast financial resources. Those corporations do, and they can pass those costs along to us. So it's not like we don't end up paying for those, which is, I think, the, the, the part of this thinking that you know, misses, misses that. It's not, it doesn't take place in a vacuum. Like these are all, the economy is very complicated and it recalibrates and corporate, you know, corporations, <laughs> they, they do, you know, maybe, maybe you think it's wrong, maybe you think it's immoral, but to maintain their profits, right? They, they, they just raise the price of goods or whatever the services. Um, I mean, like the, the costs right now of actually of Uber and Lyft are just getting, are getting so insane, so absurd. Um, I, I have to. I feel like it, it'd probably be hurting their their bottom line. I mean, they're you know they're raising the cost of uh, of the service. Uh, I have to think in part because of all the kind of regulations they've been hit with, or all the they've been targeted really by uh, by Democrats in a lot of places. And to the extent that the service is becoming probably unusable for a lot of people, uh, so it's not you know it's uh, it's real headaches that the government can put you through. You know, it was so interesting because I remember when it it was, you know, there was reporting that Donald Trump had not paid any income tax one year. You know, the New York Times managed to get their hands on his tax returns. And, you know, it was like, oh, this big revelation that all these Democrats were sure was going to turn all these people against Trump, that he didn't pay any taxes. Right. Whereas, you know, I spoke to a lot of people, a lot of working hmm. class people who were like, yeah, that's a boss, right? Like he managed to find a legal way to, you know, convince the government that he didn't owe them any money. That's really cool. And, you know, I have to say, I, I, I kind of agreed with that. Like, you know, as long as what you're doing is within the confines of the law and you're not like robbing the American people of taxes that you owe them, I totally support that. You know, I mm. think, you know, I think corporate taxes should be low because I think a lot of corporations are, you know, creating jobs for Americans and that's really important and we should be incentivizing that. I'm not one of these people who wants to see, you know, the 
the corporate tax rate at 35%, 40%. At the same time, a lot of people who are extremely wealthy do skirt the law. And it bothers me a lot that they are you know, not the focus of the oh. IRS. They are not the focus of enforcement, that the enforcement is happening at a higher rate for people who are really, really at the bottom of the income scale. I mean, if you're making less than $25,000 a year, I mean, it is just appalling that the you would ever be, you know, in the crosshairs of the IRS. And yet we know that, you know, people who make, you know, less than $25,000 a year, you know, it's just some 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 stats I pulled up, they're audited at 2.7%. Whereas, um, you know, people who make um, between 25 dollars and $100,000 a year are audited at 1.3%, so less. And then businesses that make more than $100,000 a year in sales, 2.4%, which is still less than people making under $25,000 a year. So to me, that's just that's just wrong. And um, if this, I, you know, if the Democrats have a way to make sure that this $80 billion is going to go to the right place, doing the right thing, I support it. Hmm. I support that in theory, but I doubt it will work like that. <laughs> you know, what are the what are the more IRS agents going to do? Right? They're going to yeah. That's that's the worry. They will pester um, working class people. That's a crazy statistic. You know, why? What is wrong with our mm -hmm. government that it wants to make life more difficult for those who are struggling? For those who have, Horrible. you know, the, the the least access to food and housing, etc. It's it's so indicative of the priorities of, I guess, the kinds of people who staff these agencies. So, I mean, or of a, sh a budget shortfall where they have to go after what's mm -hmm. easy to get to, you know, which is like a waitress who messed up her taxes totally by accident. It's horrible. Yeah. Well, they always say it's a budget is the issue. So if uh, more <laughs> will raise the raise the budget, maybe it'll work for the IRS. Never doesn't seem to work for the other uh, other agencies, but we shall see. And we'll have more rising right after this. Robbie, what is on your radar? Well, the city of Washington, D.C. is moving forward with a requirement unprecedented and essentially unique in all the country that all kids ages 12 and older must be vaccinated for COVID-19 before returning to school this fall. The district's attitude is, quote, no shots, no school. Paul Kinn, D.C.'s deputy mayor for education, told the publication DCS last week that the city has, quote, every intention of following the law. And by that, he means the city has every intention of forcing kids who are not vaccinated to miss more school. The city believes that more than 80 percent of kids in that category are already vaccinated, but that rate drops to just 60 percent of black students. In other words, students who are already disproportionately likely to have missed too much school or who are disproportionately likely to come from a disadvantaged economic background, well, they're a lot less likely to be vaccinated. Thus, we should make no mistake. A policy of enforcing COVID vaccinations for teenagers is a policy that will mean more black and brown kids missing out on school. Now, we talked about this on Rising last week, but it bears repeating. There is no legitimate scientific rationale for this policy. Otherwise, healthy young people are not at significant risk of a negative COVID health outcome. Most importantly, the vaccine is no longer a public health measure. It's a personal health decision. Vaccinated people can easily contract and transmit the virus. Breakthrough infections are now so common, we've ceased even calling them breakthrough infections. President Biden has been vaccinated, twice boosted, didn't stop him from getting the virus, COVID is super transmissible. Mitigation efforts can reduce your chances of contracting it to some degree, 
and the vaccine certainly helps at-risk people decrease their likelihood of severe disease and death, which is great, but the vaccine itself is just not offering any sort of reliable protection against infection. Against severe disease, yes. Against infection, no. The argument for vaccinating kids was supposed to be that even if the virus isn't so bad for them, well, they could spread it to a vulnerable member of the community, like a teacher or a janitor, etc. We vaccinate kids against a whole host of illnesses because we don't want outbreaks of disease in school environments. But look, the COVID vaccine doesn't work that way. It doesn't stop outbreaks of COVID. So the argument for mandating it is much weaker than the argument for mandating other vaccines that do stop transmission. Journalist David Zweig explained this expertly last week on our show. Let's watch. Behind a mandate, we don't always or often mandate a medical product solely because of the purported benefit to the individual. The underlying reason why a school district would do it is to say, hey, we need you to have this thing done because you have an obligation to the community. But the vaccine isn't doing that to any degree uh, on a large scale that would make sense, particularly so for children who've already been infected. Um, I have not seen any data to show what the actual reduction is in severe disease or illness from um, a child being vaccinated versus a child who's healthy, who's already had COVID. Um, we haven't seen any of that um, real world data yet. And now, so far, D.C. is basically the only school district in the country to require vaccination for this age category, 12 and up. Los Angeles had planned to do so, but they gave up when they saw the actual vaccination rates for these teenagers. My fear, though, is that school districts could at any point move to require COVID vaccination. They might also require vaccination for kids even younger. Uh, so far, the vaccine only has emergency approval from the FDA for kids five and older, so districts can't really mandate that. But once the vaccine has general authorization for five-year-olds, well, then I would expect D.C. at least to require it for them as well. And we don't know what other districts could do in the future. Now, again, to be clear, if you want to vaccinate your child, you should absolutely be able to do so. But if a different family makes a different choice, that's okay. shouldn't matter to you. doesn't put you or your family at an increased risk to any appreciable degree. Now, one thing I noticed when I was doing research for this radar and looking into school vaccination policies is that New York City, while not having a blanket mandate, actually has one of those one of the most ridiculous policies I've ever encountered, at least on paper. I don't know what they're doing in terms of enforcement. But New York City is not requiring the vaccine for all students. It is requiring the vaccine for students who play sports or participate in certain, quote, high risk extracurricular activities. <laughs> All DOE students, this is quoting from uh, the New York City's health website, all DOE students and staff who participate in high-risk sports or competitive after-school sports must be vaccinated against COVID-19. Fully vaccinated means at least two weeks have passed after an individual received a single dose of a vaccine that requires only one dose or the second dose in a two-dose series, uh, one that's authorized by the FDA, et cetera, or the World Health Organization. A COVID-19 vaccination requirement also applies to students participating in high-risk after-school extracurricular activities like chorus, musical theater, dance team, band, orchestra, with special concern for woodwinds, marching band, cheerleading, flag team, etc. Students ages five and up must be vaccinated in order to participate in these extracurricular activities. So New York City isn't requiring students generally to get vaccinated, but all students five years and up will be forced to get jabbed in order to join the band or play a sport or do all sorts of things. 
Now, note the policy's language was high risk. What the city means, of course, is that it believes these are activities in which there's a high likelihood of COVID spreading, contact sports, playing a musical instrument, et cetera. Look, we all know by now that COVID is easily spread in all sorts of circumstances. And it's worth repeating, the vaccine does not proactively block the spread of COVID in these environments. If members of the marching band and the cheerleading squad are at a high risk of contracting the virus, that risk is not actually reduced meaningfully by vaccination. The severity of the disease might be reduced for the person who contracts it. Though again, it's hard to see statistical improvements in this age category given how non-threatening COVID frankly is for the vast majority of kids. We do not want elementary, middle school, and high schoolers in our cities avoiding getting involved with sports and bands and teams because they're unvaccinated. Extracurricular activities are stabilizing forces for many kids. For at-risk youth, being involved in school groups makes them much less likely to engage in antisocial behavior, fall in with the wrong crowd, things like that. We want our kids in school. We want them to participate in a school-linked activity that they enjoy. That's how we create productive, socially well-adjusted young people. Accomplishing this is a compelling public health goal. New York City and the District of Columbia are risking undermining it for no good reason, certainly not for anyone's health. It puts the health of our entire society at risk, Bacha, is my fear. The things we're doing just make no sense. And so we, you know, we had talked about what DC is doing on the show uh, last week, but you're in New York, so I don't know if you were aware of this. I hadn't looked closely enough at what New York's policy was going to be. That's a five and older policy. Maybe they're not enforcing it, but that's what it says. Five and older policy to participate in all sorts of uh, extracurricular activities that that you want, but you want kids to do those things. They deserve to do those things. Whether they're vaccinated or not makes no difference, none whatsoever, to the public health situation in these schools. It's unbelievable. I mean, I remember, you know, it, you know, right after the vaccine came out five months later, something like that, um, when they made that mandate to enter restaurants and suddenly black friends of mine were telling me that they were being turned away from restaurants oh my God. in blue cities in 2021. I oh mean, it's appalling. Now black children are going to be just like you said, turned away from schools. Black children are going to be turned away from extracurricular activities. What are we doing here? And, you know, Robbie, I wanted to ask you because I mean, I'm so glad that you keep your finger on this and you keep pressing this. What is your explanation for why? Why are they doing this? Why can't they see how terrible this is, you know, from a racial equity point of view, which they claim to be like that that is their number one issue. Yes. Why are they doing this? It's, it's some kind of delusion. It's some kind of tribal, as best I can tell. You have to be, you know, if you're, if you're a good thinking, pro-science, Team Blue member, you have to be for, not just for vaccination, because I am for vaccination. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I've, I've said that I think there are significant benefits of vaccination for, uh, for many populations, for uh, at-risk people, for elderly people, and that I think the vaccine should, you know, I don't, I don't like when the FDA drags its feet on this stuff. I absolutely think you, I, I would have moved faster on allowing families to vaccinate their kids if they want to. So it's not, it, to my, my mind, we, when we talked to David Zweig last week, he said the same thing, that it's not like, it's crazy to call him anti-vaccine. All he's saying is that there's no, there's no rationale to require this and then to punish kids who don't get it by making their lives even worse. Their lives have been miserable already. Can you imagine being a, a young person going, I mean, the, you know, the young people that, that I know, I have nieces and nephews, I have uh, kids of, of family, friends, those kinds of things. Um, I, I guess I don't actually know a lot of young people in their teenage years where they're probably 
most affected by the social distortions, it's got to be miserable. I mean, you can see from the, you know, from the mental health, uh, the illness surveys, how much worse things have gotten for them. But we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep stigmatizing the unvaccinated, even though they're not providing any it, it, right, it's not. There's not some some conflict of values where we have to decide. Well, on the one hand, we want to give you this autonomy and let it be a personal decision, but on the other hand, we feel like we have to compel you to do this so we can keep yeah. transmission rates down in the school. No one is making the argument that requiring vaccination is corresponding with keeping the transmission rates down. No one is bothering. To, you don't hear that argument even from the most kind of adamantly, you know, team team blue, team science people because they know it's not true. And it just really reinforces the vast gap between what they call, quote unquote, the science yes. and then what they yes. do in terms of their policy, like how far, how big that gap is. And then they question why they have no authority and no moral authority, no scientific authority, why Americans no longer trust these institutions. I mean, this is why. <laughs> this is why. The vast loss of trust corresponding to these just absurd mandates, uh, which I will be continuing to follow, but I can't wait to find out, Bacha, what's on your radar, and that will be coming up right after this. Bacha, what's on your radar? There's a historic surge in migrants illegally crossing into the United States. Uh, this June alone, over 200,000 migrants were apprehended, the most ever for that month. Overwhelmed, Border State Governor Greg Abbott of Texas has started putting migrants on buses to Washington, D.C. and New York City. Both are sanctuary cities, meaning their police departments don't cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement officials. Mayor Eric Adams of New York and Mayor Muriel Bowser of D.C. blasted Abbott and begged the government for federal assistance with what is quickly becoming a humanitarian crisis. Amazingly, the liberal media found a way to blame the right for this crisis. Cold-blooded Texas Gov vows to dump asylum seekers in the middle of D.C. was how the Daily Beast covered the story. GOP governors cause havoc by busing migrants to the East Coast, explained the New York Times. GOP governors sent buses of migrants to D.C. with no plan for what came next, says NPR. Leave it to the liberal legacy media to find a way to blame Republicans for the Biden administration's bungling of the southern border. Unlike the New York Times, migrants are not confused about who deserves credit for their arrival in the U.S. One migrant told reporters back in March, Biden promised us that everything was going to change. Another cried into her phone, Biden promised us. A Haitian migrant told Fox News, he promised the Haitian community he will help them. A Honduran woman told Politico, I just need the U.S. to tell me when we can cross. Biden has given us 100 days to get to the U.S. and give us legal papers, another migrant from Honduras told CNN right after Biden took office, referencing a Biden administration moratorium on deportations for his first 100 days in office, which was also mentioned by children at the border who told a Fox News reporter that they came because Biden had welcomed them to the U.S. and said they had 100 days to get to freedom. Where did millions of migrants get the idea that Biden had opened the border? Well, from Biden himself. During the primary debates, then-candidate Biden said that migrants illegally crossing the border should not be detained and, like nearly every other candidate, said he would decriminalize illegal border crossing. Here without documents, and that is his only offense. Should that person be deported? That person should not be the focus of deportation. We should fundamentally change the way we deal with them. 
Senator. Millions of migrants were listening along with the human traffickers who extort, torture, rape, and kill them. And Biden more or less followed through as president. From day one in office, the president stopped construction of a border wall with Mexico, ended President Trump's travel ban restricting travel from 14 countries, and dramatically reduced deportations from 267,000 in 2019 to just 59,000 in 2021. The Biden administration also vowed to end Title 42, a Trump-era restriction that allowed migrants to be turned away due to the pandemic, though a federal judge in Louisiana has for now blocked Biden's attempt to end the policy. And the Supreme Court recently gave the Biden administration the green light to end another highly effective Trump-era program known as Remain in Mexico that allowed border agents to turn migrants away and have them wait for their asylum cases in Mexico. Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris have both told migrants not to come to the U.S. over the past year. But actions speak louder than words. From October 2021 to June 2022, Border Patrol logged over 2 million migrant encounters, another all-time record. And of the migrants who crossed the border illegally, just 13 percent have reported to an Immigration and Customs Enforcement office. It's as close as you can come to open borders without actually opening the border. So it's ironic to say the least that the White House, like the liberal media that represents its voter base, blamed Governor Abbott for the mass migration into American cities. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre called it a shameful political ploy last week, another great show of gaslighting from an administration that has made it an art form. What's perhaps most surprising about all this is that this open border policy represents a total reversal on the part of the left. Until very recently, the free market Republicans were the ones pushing for things like amnesty and easy access to migrant labor, while the Democrats were the side of limiting immigration. Back in the 1990s, Barbara Jordan, the first black woman from the South elected to Congress and chair of the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform, wrote that the commission found no natural interest in continuing to import lesser skilled and unskilled workers to compete in the most vulnerable parts of our labor force. Watch Democratic Socialist Senator Bernie Sanders' reaction as recently as 2015 to the suggestion by journalist Ezra Klein that the U.S. should have open borders. Open borders? Open no, borders. That's, a, that's a Koch brothers proposal. The really? idea, Of course. I mean, that's a right-wing proposal which says essentially there is no United States. But it, anybody would, can, it would make a lot me, of global poor richer, wouldn't it? And it would make everybody in America poor. Then you're doing away with, with the concept of a nation state. And I don't think there's any country in the world which believes in that. If you believe in a nation state or in a country called the United States or UK or Denmark or any other country, you have an obligation, in my view, to do everything we can to help poor people. What right-wing people in this country would love is an open border policy. Bring in all kinds of people who work for 2 or $3 an hour. That would be great for them. I don't believe in that. I think we have to raise wages in this country. I think we have to do everything that we can to create the millions of jobs. Open borders? That's a Koch brothers proposal Sanders insisted just six years ago. Fast forward to that 2020 primary debate and Sanders, just like Biden, said he would support decriminalizing illegal border crossing. What happened? Why the 180? It's especially surprising given that the Democrats' base, or what used to be their base, 
agrees more with Bernie 2015 than Bernie 2020. In 2019, at the height of the Trump era, a large majority of Black and Hispanic Americans said they would vote for a presidential candidate who stood for strengthening our border security to reduce illegal immigration, a Harvard-Harris poll found. That shouldn't be surprising. Illegal immigration has been tied to a 20 to 60% decrease in Black working-class wages. Another recent study suggested that immigration accounts for a third of the decline in the Black employment rate over the last 40 years. Black Americans are more supportive of limiting immigration than any other bloc of the Democratic coalition, writes sociologist Musa Algarbi. And Hispanics actually tend to be more concerned about illegal immigration than are whites or blacks. Why did the Democrats abandon these voters? Why the flip-flop on immigration from those furthest to the left who once had the multiracial working class as their top concern? Many who support mass immigration do so ostensibly because of the overall effect on GDP, which is positive. But they tend not to ask positive for whom. It is, of course, the elites who benefit from the rise, people whose professional jobs would never be threatened by someone who doesn't speak English, who can benefit economically from the cheaper products and cheap labor that free trade and mass immigration brings into their homes, while the American working classes pay for it as good jobs are sacrificed on the altar of helping the indigent of other countries. Point this out. And you can count on a member of the squad to call you racist, a ridiculous accusation given who has paid the highest price for mass immigration. The history of citizenship in the U.S. is deeply woven with the history of racism, tweeted Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez back in 2019. It has been used as the legal enforcer of racism for most of U.S. history. We should not abandon our values and rights to far-right white nationalists, tweeted Congresswoman Ilhan Omar when Vice President Kamala Harris told migrants to stay home. But as is so often the case, the accusation of bigotry hides a class divide that has seen the Democrats choose educated, leftist, white elites over the working class again and again, and then misunderstand their class privilege as higher virtue. And it's that class divide that explains how the Democrats came to be the site of open borders. Remember that immigrants make up nearly half of America's household servants, 42% of taxi drivers and chauffeurs, and 35% of grounds maintenance workers. The people employing these migrant workers are the people who the Democrats' reversal on immigration is designed to appeal to, an overeducated leftist elite who would rather employ the poor of other countries than offer any kind of protections to the working class of their own. The squad are these people's patron saints. Of course, I believe they also have compassion for migrants crossing the border in search of a better life. I do too. It's impossible not to feel heartbroken for anyone looking for a better life for their children. But what about our own struggling workers? Why no compassion for them? Moreover, this quote-unquote compassionate approach to immigration is incentivizing truly dangerous behaviors, leading to parents drowning in the Rio Grande with their babies and to children riding La Bestia and watching as other children fall off to their deaths. A third of women who make the trip admit to being sexually abused, and that's only the ones we know of. And nearly everyone is preyed upon in some way by the powerful cartels that now effectively control the border. Trump may have gone too far with his family separation policy, but taken as a whole, his relentless approach to securing the border ended up preventing a lot of cruelty, both to would-be migrants and to American workers.
Like so much of what passes for political debate in America in 2022, the fight between Governor Abbott and Mayor Adams is not about politics so much as it is about class. Democrats want an open border to stroke the egos of their elite base who benefit economically from their vanity virtues while demanding that Texas absorb without complaint the millions of migrants who their policies have opened the door to. Now, the humanitarian crisis is extending here in the U.S. at a time of record homelessness. Thousands and thousands of migrants are now joining their ranks in cities across the country, fueling a 10% growth in homelessness since May in New York City alone. There has been a surge of fentanyl seizures at the U.S.-Mexico border, directly linked to the skyrocketing of overdose deaths. Meanwhile, the influx of foreign workers is offsetting the increase in wages that the tight labor market would otherwise be affording American workers. Perhaps worst of all, migrant deaths at the southern border have surged under the Biden administration, a Washington Examiner investigation uncovered. Authorities have found 609 bodies since the start of 2022, a record high which doesn't include bodies discovered further north of the border in California, Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. Some of these deaths made headlines, like the 50 souls who perished in the back of an abandoned truck in South Texas earlier this year, or the migrant from Nicaragua who drowned crossing the Rio Grande River in May in the same area that a 22-year-old National Guard specialist drowned in April, or the body of a small child recovered in the Rio Grande Valley whose brother is still missing. But most of these tragic and totally preventable deaths go unmarked. This is leftist compassion curdled into cruelty, and it's not Governor Abbott's fault. It's President Biden's. The White House is right about one thing, though. It's shameful. Robbie, where are you on this Mm. issue? Well, we do have some disagreements here, but of course, no disagreement about um, the border, the dangerous border crossings. This is not the right way to come into the country. It is not good for the people doing it. It should not be uh, the option at all. But I think to look, people are trying to get into this country. They want to come to America because we are the land of freedom and opportunity and we have a lot to offer. People want to come here and we benefit uh, from immigrants. I think you and I probably differ or disagree a little bit on how widespread those those benefits are. You know, I, I take the view that we're all we're not all workers but we're all or in in fields that are affected by immigration in the way you're describing but we all are consumers of food we all need housing we all need things that get cheaper when we have better access to labor just like when we have better access to microchips or we have better access to labor is a resource like any other so i want to make it easier for people to come here and work legally not illegally because then right you have this abuse and you have this violence but we in order to not have more of the illegal uh, crossing, we really do need more of the legal crossing. Are we going to have totally open borders? No. I don't know if it's a right-wing proposal, but we, we need to monitor the people coming in to some degree for, you know, for national security reasons, at least. But I do want to make it easier um, uh, to, to come here, and, uh, and I, I think that's you know, better for, it's, it's, obviously it's better for the people if, if they're choosing something other than the illegal border crossing, and we can really benefit you know, from these people economically. And then if, if people get left behind because of that, because they get outcompeted, then I guess we have to talk about, you know, what can society do for those people? But I don't want to, it feels like holding us all back in order to keep wages artificially high for workers in a couple sectors when we would all benefit from bringing down prices for and you know, more availability, housing, food, et cetera. But that's, that's my view. It's, it's the right wing Koch brothers <laughs> view, I guess. <laughs> 
represent. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm I'm more in the Bernie 2015 camp. Where is that guy, right? You know, mm -hmm. I, I think that this sort of very um, depressing thing happened where, you know, we, there was all this offshoring of really good working class jobs that lead to middle class lifestyles, you know, with with all these trade deals um, that happened, you know, in the heartland. And the, the, the motto was learn to code, right? We're going to get these people jobs in the information sector. Yeah, you that's know, not happening. That's ridiculous. That's not obviously. happening. But yeah. also, yeah. I mean, the, but the next stage of the offshoring of manufacturing jobs was importing all of these tech workers. So, you know, they sort of there's all of this sidestepping of the huge amount of talent that's in America that goes, you know, just just left, you know, fallow, you know, all of the sort of mute unsung Miltons in our inner cities who never get a fair shot because mm. it's so easy to get workers, you know, from other countries. And I like Bernie Sanders in 2015. I, I'm against that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what you get on Rising, a real exchange of, <laughs> of ideas. We do disagree on this, and uh, we made our arguments for how we feel about it. But I thank you so much uh, for sharing what's on your radar with us, Batya. We so appreciate it. And we'll have more Rising after these messages. Last week, the Department of Justice charged four current and former police officers with federal civil rights violations. The officers were involved with securing and executing the search warrant that led to the death of Breonna Taylor, a medical worker who was shot and killed by police officers in Louisville, Kentucky in March 2020 during a raid on her apartment. The charges include lying to obtain a search warrant for Taylor's apartment. Senior lecturer of African-American studies at the University of Maryland, Jason Nichols and Charles Love, executive director of Seeking Educational Excellence are here to discuss. Welcome to you both and thank you so much for joining us. So you, you both wrote um, op-eds for us at Newsweek, competing op-eds about this topic. So I wonder if we could start with you each sort of laying out your reaction to this news. Let's start with you, Charles. Well, my reaction was like much of what you hear in the news is what is the priority? So it wasn't that I was okay with police officers lying to get a warrant. If that happened, they definitely should be charged. It was more along the lines of what are we prioritize? Is this something we should celebrate? Is this going to fix problems that we believe are systemic? So that was kind of the point. And Jason? Yeah, so I, I think uh, it's always important to hold people accountable, particularly when they've committed a crime. I think it's even more egregious when it comes from law enforcement. And I think none of us are safe if, and, and again, I know we have two African-American men on this panel and, and it seems like this is probably a race issue, but I think no American is safe when law enforcement can lie on you. And uh, I think that these charges were important. I think the Justice Department is investigating a whole lot of things. So I don't think this is a priority issue. You can look at they're investigating Hunter Biden. They're investigating January 6th. And they're investigating these police officers who apparently have committed a crime. So I think that that's important. I think it's important to hold people accountable when they commit crimes. Right, because this really could happen to anyone. I mean, it's, you know, it, it took place in an apartment, right? It was someone, somebody else's private property. It's not, this isn't one of those police um, errors that's like heat of the moment or some, you know, confrontation on the street. And, and by the way, those, you know, when the police are responsible too, I think should be, should be handled. But this is in a way chosen by law enforcement. They went in, they, in the manner that they did at the time they did with the, with the attitude and the tactics that they used. 
And then this resulted, and I think a lot of people, my, myself included, are like, "Well, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want this. If you can say this is standard, if this is standard procedure, I want the procedures changed because this feels like it could happen to anyone." So, what do you, you know, how do you, I, I guess, process that, uh, Charles? And you're thinking that like maybe this, I, what I'm understanding that you're saying is that there are other priorities of, or that we should have other priorities regarding law enforcement. I. I presume perhaps you mean addressing rising crime or something like that. No, I'm not even saying that they, that it shouldn't be, again, that it shouldn't be investigated. And definitely I wouldn't want police officers to be able to do that. And, and I agree with both of you, you and Jason, that it makes people less safe and, and it hurts the uh, relationship. What I'm saying is that, you know, it's kind of like, why? Why are they doing it and what are the end results? And so if they, what I mean by priority is, are they saying that this case is somehow, you know, more egregious and more important than others is all I'm saying. So it's it's kind of like it's supposed to be a win. Like, what are they trying to get? Like a lot of things, I don't look at things from a political standpoint, but I know many people do. And so if there are squeaky wheels, if there are if there's political wins, gains to be made, then people will do these things. So that's that's what I'm really questioning, not whether uh, if a police officer does something wrong, they should be investigated. That's not it. It's more along the lines of, why they're doing it why when there was you know what what happens in a lot of these cases too is it's not just that situation of those police officers if you look at ferguson chicago and other places like that it's like we're going to take over the investigation on a federal level of this incident and then we're going to investigate the whole police department and it shifts to something this belief of the police department which that definitely has a negative effect down the road jason do you want to pick that up and respond to any of that yeah, I would say, you know, I, I read Charles's piece, which was wonderfully written, um, but I, there are a lot of things I disagree with. If there, is, if there are systemic problems within a police department, that needs to be investigated. He referenced the DOJ report in Baltimore and said there was vague discrimination. I mean, they strip searched a woman in public on a sidewalk for a missing headlight. You know, I'm from Baltimore, so I, I or at least the Baltimore area. And, uh, you know, they had the gun trace task force, which wasn't in the report where people were planting guns and stealing drugs and selling them back on the street. These were police officers. This is problematic. And I think if there are certain circumstances which could uh, show that there is there are systemic problems, then you have to see if there are systemic problems, because that keeps us all less safe. We need good police officers. We need strong police departments. And if there are problems that are systemic, they need to be looked at. And in, in the case of Baltimore, there was a 163-page report. I read it. Um, and, you know, you talk about Freddie Gray. There was the case of Dondi Johnson, who was taken on a rough ride for urinating in public and ended up getting paralyzed and then eventually dying. Now, what happened in that case was a poor city like Baltimore had to pay out $7.5 million in a settlement for that. These are the things that we can avoid Chicago, where I know Charles is from, they paid out hundreds of millions of dollars out of taxpayers' pockets. So if we need to fix systemic problems, those need to be investigated, those need to be, uh, they need oversight, and that's what the Department of Justice is for, is for oversight when uh, local areas are failing. Uh, yeah, and I mentioned I brought up crime a minute ago uh, because I, you know, I do think 
Crime is rising in some cities, not all cities, but some cities, and there's more, uh, the, the public is clearly very concerned about it. So on, on one hand, I, I think there's a, maybe more interest from the public, from people in having more policing or, or, having, or, or wanting the police to address this problem. So then it is an issue of priorities, though, when, well, does more police mean we have more encounters that everyone, most people are very horrified at what happens, you know, more banging down people's doors, more, right, rough rides, that kind of stuff. So it's, a, it's an interesting moment for the police because, I mean, I don't know if criminal, the criminal justice reform movement is kind of sputtering or is losing some momentum after having, you know, a, a kind of a good run for a couple of years, First Step Act, stuff like that. Uh, but it's it's not that, you know, it, it shouldn't be that, that having criminal justice reform and having, like, good and effective policing are necessarily in opposition, but that might be, I don't know, that might be the perception. What, what's your feelings about this, Charles? Well, I think the issue is is not what Jason was saying, is these things are complicated and nuanced, and we just, I mean, because he picked some egregious cases, but we can do the same thing on the other side, obviously, right? Um, the problem is, one, the belief that Fed equals good, right? Like, so we bring in the Feds because the local government is corrupt and someone needs to come in and have oversight. But we obviously have, we can spend hours on the problems with the federal government, the systemic problems within the federal government, what they do and uh, egregious active they've done on citizens. So that's the one thing. So it doesn't necessarily fix it. But there's also another side, like you're saying, there's, Robbie, there's a cost to this, right? So uh, you mentioned Chicago. You know, in in the piece you talk about, um, it, or you gave a couple of examples of some things that they did they shouldn't have done. But in Chicago, you have cases where people are are being released, violent criminals, in New York and other places. And the and what it causes the community and the citizens, the, uh, the, the them being unsafe, but also the police officers leaving. I guess you know you talked about a qualified immunity, and uh, no, I'm sorry, the consent decree. Well, right now the uh, mayor of New Orleans is trying to roll that back is saying it's hurting the city, the safety of the city and the police. A lot of police forces, New York and Chicago are hemorrhaging police officers. So you have to keep them accountable. It's not giving them a pass, but it also hurts the citizens when they're not enough police. Good policing is important, but no police is pretty bad. Right. And, you know, you, you talk about the qualified immunity, being able to sue police officers civilly, I mean, all of these things are going to make police both sit on their hands or quit, and you don't get positive results in the community from those actions either. Yeah, Jason, talk a little bit about, you know, how you see this sort of current crisis in recruiting, um, you know, within the police departments. I, I take Charles's point about how that's being impacted by this perceived tension between, you know, the federal government on the one hand and then individual police departments. Do you think that that is a problem? Do you think that, you know, having a shortage of police officers, good police officers, is related to any of the rising crime, any of the problems we're seeing in lower income neighborhoods? So I think a lot of the, the rise in crime, there are many uh, causes of that. And we're actually, I have to give Chicago and the Chicago Police Department uh, a little bit of credit because their homicide numbers have actually gone down recently. So I think a lot of this came from us all facing a, a circumstance that we were not accustomed to, which was the pandemic, when you saw violent crime rise to uh, you know historic levels. Uh, and uh, we were facing a, a circumstance that most of us were not accustomed to. But um, I think what you need is good police. And in order to recruit police, 
But by the way, no one talks about the fact that we're facing a shortage of teachers as well. There are a lot of civil servant jobs that uh, we're facing a shortage of. Um, but I don't think that making police abide by the law that they are actually tasked to defend is what's keeping police officers from doing their jobs. If it is, if police officers want carte blanche to actually break the law, then they shouldn't be police officers and, and they're not making the communities any safer. Um, I think uh, what we need to do, in my opinion, it's the same thing for, for many civil servants, is we need to pay them more. I think police officers should be paid more in a lot of different uh, areas. I think the same thing for teachers, and then you'll be able to recruit them more. It shouldn't be a fallback uh, profession. It's something that we should expect professionalism. And when I pay you more, that means I can expect more. Um, and you'll get a, a different kind of person who wants to be a police officer, not someone who will break the law or feel like they have to sell drugs in their spare time. So for me, uh, the rise in crime is related to a lot of uh, different factors, but I don't think it's uh, because uh, police don't want to police or anything like that. I think uh, if they don't want to police and they don't want to do the job, then they really don't want to be police officers. But I think there are ways that we can recruit more police officers, and it starts with actually finding ways to pay them more. I don't think that's the, the, the main reason either. I think the main reason is that if you look at the people who are being arrested when they are called, there are multiple offenses, right? It's like this is the, the guy's 18th arrest in his fifth violent offense. So the issue is people letting them back on the streets when they've committed violent crime. And if we want to have a federal investigation and oversight on police to make sure they do right because they're civil service, the same should go for the, you know, the judge who, who released someone because you know it was overcrowding or because he was worried about coronavirus and then the person went and killed his accuser. Right. So you gave some scenarios where the police were bad. We can list out many where innocent people have been harmed by repeat offenders, too. And that is part of the problem. So it's a police shortage and the fact that these um, DAs and many people are just allowing people back on the street. Violent criminals, not nonviolent criminals. Yeah, I think that's a, a separate issue. Um, but what I will say is that uh, we all know that longer sentences do nothing to reduce crime. They actually increase recidivism. Um, that's what a lot of people don't realize. So they're like, why don't DAs put these people away for longer uh, periods of time? What does reduce crime is the certainty of being caught. Now, that's actually, you know, so much research that backs this up. Actually, you can look at DOJ uh, reports that actually show that that this is the truth. It's the certainty of being caught. Now, if you look at a city like Chicago, you know, your home city, uh, Charles, um, they solved at one point 47% of murders when the victim was white, 22% of murders when the victim was black. Um, so if you're not solving a lot of murders, and like I said, they're getting better at this, but if you're not solving murders, and you're, that's more of a policing issue than the issue of progressive DAs or anything like that, or them being let out uh, for violent crimes. As a matter of fact, we look at a lot of these so-called progressive DAs, whether it's and hopefully this is a piece that I'll put out on uh, on Newsweek or some other platform. Uh, if you look at progressive DAs like uh, Gascon in, in L.A. or even uh, the one who got recalled, Chesa Bowden, 
they actually had similar or more arrest or excuse me uh charges filed than their predecessors did and a lot of the people in that state if we're talking about california for example actually the da's who were less progressive had even bigger spikes in murders this is not an issue about charging violent crime because progressive prosecutors do that what they don't do necessarily or what they do do is try to divert people for small low level crimes to alternatives to incarceration there are a lot of crimes that we find and i was talking to a police officer about this recently most of the crimes that they find are crimes of need not of crimes of want so uh i think we need to address that address a lot of other social issues uh and i also you know the police chief or one police chief that i know actually he told me you'll never arrest your way out of social problems we've tried that a million times so i think we need to address a lot of our other issues in society um and you know find ways to recruit good police officers and hold them accountable when they go afoul of the law charles we'll give you the last word Oh, wait, man, we could do an hour just on that last piece. I disagree with the last piece. Most of what he said is totally sensible, though. Totally. But that part about and, and really the last thing I'll say is that stats can be skewed. You have to look at everything in full. So he's right about uh, in Chicago, the percentage of uh, white victims, their murders being closed more than blacks. 100 percent true. But you need all the information and what's not what's missing there that's so important is unfortunately for men like myself and Jason. Blacks and, and other minorities were upwards of 95% of the murders in Chicago. So yes, they, they, they solved more of the white murders, but that was like 3% of the murders. So you need all of that information, but um, this is just not enough time. It's been great. I just think that uh, <laughs> violent criminals being released because long sentences may or may not be good is bad in the immediate uh, term. Well, Charles and Jason, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Charles. Thanks. As the cost of living continues to grow higher and higher, many black Americans are leaving expensive Democratic-led cities they once fled to and going back to the South in search of better economic opportunities. Half a century ago, approximately 6 million black people left the South to get away from Jim Crow laws, among other things, in what became known as the Great Migration. Fast forward 50 years and the tides are reversing. Writer and host of the Fresh Perspective podcast, Jeff Charles wrote about this phenomenon for us at Newsweek and he's here to give us insight into what's behind this shift. Welcome, Jeff. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's so great to have you. So tell us a little bit about your piece. Um, you describe this as a reverse, reverse great migration. Walk us through the argument. Yeah, Batia, what we're seeing here is nothing short of historic. Um, shortly after Reconstruction, black Americans moved in droves to the north. Um, at that time, about 90% of black Americans resided in the south. By 1970, that percentage dropped to 52%, and it's been it had been stagnant for quite a while. But now we're seeing a reversal of this trend. Black Americans are now, now moving more towards the south in droves, and, and the numbers are astounding. Hmm. And what do you think are going to be the ramifications of all of that? 
Uh, you know, I think I think honestly, it's going to make for better opportunity for Black Americans. I mean, we this is part of an a, an exodus that we're seeing from blue states in general. People are moving from the north and from the west to red states in the south because they're seeking better opportunities, better, more more affordable housing education there there's a lot that's involved here i mean and i'm actually one of them i was born and raised in southern california and i moved to texas in 2012 and now i'm in here in florida so th th this is going to be an ongoing trend with blue states losing residents especially black americans and the red states picking them up so in the piece you you speak so eloquently to a big question which is you know it, is it the case so so as the reverse migration so the great migration was driven by you know extreme discrimination and racism what we're seeing now is a reversal of that you know where does racism fit into that has the story that you know we in the north like to tell about you know how racist the south still is is that not true or are black americans so desperate due to inflation and things like that that they're willing to encounter racism I mean, in order to pursue those opportunities. How do you see that? Well, honestly, Batia, what a lot of black people will tell you is that the North isn't exactly anti-racist <laughs> either. I mean, you'll hear them say it. I live in the North and I experience racism in the North. So, I mean, it, there, there could be a lot of different opinions on this in the black community. I mean, the South still has that reputation for racism because of the history. But what I, I glean from it is that Obviously, these people don't believe that racism is enough of an obstacle to keep black people from achieving their goals if they move to the South. So even if they still believe that it remains, they, they still don't believe that this can keep them from moving forward, building generational wealth and all the things that, that you hear us talk about and closing those disparities. And that speaks to a point I think probably gets made on this show a lot, which is that, you know, kind of lip service to anti-racism or, or, or even a real commitment to anti-racism, having a culture that is, you know, more friendly on paper to, uh, to minorities is one thing. But if the economic conditions are so miserable, I mean, that's the, especially for people from disadvantaged backgrounds, many of whom are minorities, then that ends up being a kind of, you know, de facto racism that can actually be even worse. It can be li literally unlivable compared to the other stuff, uh, you know, in, in terms of if cities have housing policies where they don't build new housing or, or the or the kind of, you know, the local um, uh, kind of in, entrenched, wealthier, often white community prevents, you know, new housing developments uh, and, and that then black people aren't able to live there or disadvantaged people aren't able to live there. Like that can be just as racist, that if not more racist or, or more unlivable, more unworkable than just like, well, the people here, you know, had a history or all the older people here, their grandparents, you know, were, were unkind or looked down on black people. Uh, right. Is it is what I'm saying making any sense? Yeah, yeah, that, that does make sense, Robbie. I mean, it, and it's funny because a lot of people think that uh, policies that they define as systemically racist, they don't just happen in, in the South. The ones that they view as systemically racist also happen in the North and in the West as, as well. And so I think black people are basically, I mean, it, it, like you say, like people say, you vote with your wallet. I mean, we're voting with our feet. We see the opportunity in the South in red states and and that's where we're going to go. So, I mean, I, I think that that's really what we're, see we're seeing here. I, I don't think that racism is as much of an issue. I mean, whether the North and South are racist or not, we can all agree that it's not as racist as it used to be back in the 70s, 60s, and 50s. So to me, while racism still remains a hot button topic, it's not, it's not to the point to where people view it as an insurmountable obstacle that keeps them from achieving their objectives. Yeah, I mean, one thing that people really don't pay attention to is, um, you know, the 
for example, um, the New York City public schools are more segregated than Alabama's, you know, like the, the narrative that we like to tell that comforts us in the north, right, in blue cities is just totally false. And I wonder, Jeff, is this a referendum on the American dream and where you're more likely to achieve that? Where, Like Robbie says, where you're more likely to be able to afford a home, to get a good education for your children. Like, it, are black Americans a sort of bellwether for the failure of the American dream in these very um, segregated, both racially and from a class point of view, northern blue cities, as opposed to a kind of um, a middle class that still is thriving in, in red states? What do you think? Yeah, yeah, historically, I mean, there there have been a lot of issues. I mean, especially when it comes to achieving the, the American dream. America was not always living up to the values on which it, it, was, it was it was founded. But the great thing about America is that if you don't like where you are, you can move, mm. you can relocate. And people always talk about, oh, so many people aren't they have they have to remain in their poor cities. Well, that's not necessarily the case for everybody. For most people, they will pack up and move, even if it's scary, even if they don't really know what to expect. If they see a better opportunity, they will move to the part of the country that they believe is offering that opportunity. And that that really that's what we're seeing here. Mm. Well, Jeff Charles, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Israel and Palestinian Islamic Jihad militants have agreed to a ceasefire following a three-day conflict in Gaza that killed 44 people and wounded over 300, according to health officials. The assault began on Friday afternoon when Israel launched airstrikes to foil what it said was an attack from Gaza. This is according to the New York Times. And we are very happy to have Bacha here with us today because you know a lot more about this than I do and can kind of walk us through as you were walking me through before we started recording here. So, so tell us more about how this happened and what's going on. So it, this this sort of event seems to have started on August 1st, which was when Israel arrested Bassam al-Saadi, who is the head of the West Bank Division of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, which is an Iran-backed uh, terrorist organization that mostly operates out of Gaza, but has been growing in influence in the West Bank. Um, so Israel arrested Bassam al-Saadi, and Israel then claims that as a result, Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza started organizing for a series of rocket attacks. Israel then killed the second in command of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, Khalid Mansour, and in that attack, five civilians were also killed, including children. So in response to that, Palestinian Islamic Jihad started throwing rockets into Israel, and these rockets are called belly dancers by local Gazans because they're sort of shaped like this. And often a lot of them fall in Gaza itself because they're not that powerful. So 935 were launched into Israel, 160 fell in Gaza, and 300 were intercepted by the Iron Dome. Now of the ones that fell in Gaza, um, the IDF released a video that seems to show one of them falling in the Jabalia refugee camp, which is where um, a number of children were tragically killed. So we'll see you know, how that shapes out. Um, Wow. The most interesting thing about this conflict right now is that Hamas did not get involved at all. And this is interesting because, you know, 
so Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas are actually ideological rivals, um, and they fight a lot, um, as is true between Hamas and Fatah, the other Palestinian um, uh, political party. They actually hate each other more than either of them hates Israel. But usually what happens is, is when Palestinian Islamic Jihad loves rockets into Israel, Hamas does take some sort of symbolic solidarity with them and joins in. And the reason that didn't happen here is because the Israeli response was different. So under Bibi Netanyahu, who reigned for a very long time in Israel, when things like this would happen, he didn't care who was shooting the rockets into Israel. He didn't care if it was Palestinian Islamic Jihad or Hamas. Mm. Um, he would always sort of punish uh, the, the infrastructure, which meant Hamas. And so they would then respond. And this time, Israel was very, very careful not to harm the infrastructure, meaning it was very careful not to give Hamas an excuse to join in, which it didn't. And many are saying that this could potentially signal um, a new relationship that's much better. Um, Israel's been given, uh, giving about 12,000 work permits to Palestinians in Gaza, which are a lifeline because Gazans live under this very punishing blockade, you know, the vast majority living in poverty with no hope for the future, no jobs. So those um, work permits are a real lifeline between Israel and Hamas. And it was it's just very interesting that both sides didn't want to, um, you know, disturb the ceasefire that was hold, that was holding there and the cooperation that's working there. So it is a very interesting turn of events. And obviously, thank God for the ceasefire. And um, hopefully this will mean, you know, the end and, and no more children will be killed. Uh, absolutely. I, I mean, I guess this is a, this is a more uh, more easily wound down conflict than some uh, flare ups of this we've seen in the past. Do you know why uh, the figure who was who was arrested was arrested now? Had they been, you know, after him for a while and he'd been in hiding, something like that? Or they're just putting together a case? Or do you know what prompted that? I don't, but um, Israel has um, a habit of holding people in detention indefinitely, especially if they're, you know, considered part mm -hmm. of a terrorist cell organization. And so that is what prompted the, you know, the alleged response, you know, from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Um, you know, another really interesting aspect to this is, you know, last year during that conflagration between Hamas and Israel, it became very clear that the Abraham Accords had really changed um, the 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 layout in the Middle East. So the Abraham Accords were the peace deals between Israel and Bahrain and Israel and the UAE that were negotiated by the Trump administration. And it became very clear that these um, Gulf Arab nations that used to stand up for Hamas and the Palestinians and used to show up for them whenever there was conflagrations with Israel were not going to be doing that anymore. And so the, the landscape has really changed. Um, it's made things really, really different for the Palestinians. They are going to have to find a new way to advocate for their cause which I know they will. I hope they will. And and um, but but um, at the same time, you know, you, what we're seeing now is the down the the downstream effects of that. You know, both on Hamas and on Palestinian Islamic Jihad. You know, a thousand rockets. Who knows what's left in their arsenal? Not a lot. Hmm. Well, and especially if the, the rockets end up, you know, killing other Palestinians as well. So it's. I mean, it's a shame. Yeah. It's sad. Whoever ends up being killed, we don't want anyone killed. In this conflict, and you know, so many people want uh, equal treatment and equal rights and better conditions for the Palestinians as well, for their you know right to have their own uh, have their own uh, homeland and own government and all that. You know, without this constant uh, fighting that often results in in people getting killed. Um, I think on both sides, but many Palestinians uh, because they have you know less capability to to be um, to 
be tactical in you know what they're doing. So uh, good, I guess, that this was more constrained. Although still, you know, children dying and children dying in in the strike initially, right? That Israel yes. uh, made that, that yes. prompted the. Tragic. You know, we were talking obviously about uh, last week Zawahiri being killed, and uh, it was really great that this was a drone strike that. As far as we know, the reporting has still been consistent that no one else was killed, that he was actually droned on his balcony, and, uh, and there was no one else harmed in that attack, and we were able to do that, which, you know, is, is good in that case. There's been plenty of cases, right, where we drone, uh, and then it turns out it's the wrong person, or there were also civilians or just, you know, that, I remember the car full of, what it was, it was a translator and his family from uh, a year ago or maybe two years ago. Um, just horrifying. You know, this kind of warfare can be really, really you know, d detached and, and in, I mean, all warfare is inhumane, but, but for, you know, the, the, uh, the agency of it so far removed that uh, you feel less responsible and thus it's maybe easier to do it or to move forward with it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bacha, for updating us on all that. That was uh, a, a lot of very precise information <laughs> that we certainly appreciate. And we'll have more rising right after this. So we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the Inflation Reduction Act, so-called, that passed the Senate last night. Uh, Washington Post reporter Jeff Stein highlighted some standouts from the bill that includes money for clean energy, like $80 billion for electric vehicles, heat pumps, home solar installation, as well as a 15% tax on corporations with more than $1 billion in profits and Medicare prescription drug negotiation. However, not all Democrats were on board. Senator Bernie Sanders criticized the bill and said it would not do enough to combat inflation. The former presidential candidate is now calling for an extension of the child tax credit, which was left out of the final legislation. And lower, pri in, uh, lower prices on insulin also failed to make it into the final text, a big win, obviously, for the pharma lobbyists, which after, comes after Republicans blocked the measure from passing. You can see here just how much the U.S. pays for insulin, my God, in comparison to other countries. You can also see here Chile comes second, but it's not even close to the U.S. Uh, price. Um, and we can come back to that in a minute. I, I think it's a shame that the, uh, uh, the prescription drug negotiation got left out. Um, I take, uh, you know, I, I take Bernie's criticisms of it on, on that front in particular. I also, my, my kind of big takeaway with the bill is, look, you can say that these policies are important, they're necessary on their own because whatever, we have to fight climate change, so we have to encourage green energy. You can say that. You can say, you know, we want to, we should have the child tax credit because families need it. I just don't understand how you can say that all of these things together are going to reduce inflation because more government spending is, to my mind, one of the surer ways to, to exacerbate inflation. That seems to me to be what most economists think about the issue, that runaway government spending is not, I don't think it's the only cause of inflation in this case, but that it, it does cause inflation. So, so it, it's one of, I think this bill is in the long uh, kind of proud tradition of congressional uh, acts that are ca called something that do not correspond at all to what they'll accomplish, um, you know, Patriot Act type stuff. But that's not to say that maybe the individual provisions can stand on their own. They just don't look very likely to reduce inflation, to my mind. And I don't think that's a crazy thing to say. But what's your takeaway on it, Bacha? I definitely think it's going to have very 
very little impact on inflation because inflation is a right now problem and this is very long term. We're, mm-hmm. It's going to take a long time for us to see the impact of this bill on the economy, you know, years. And hopefully, please God, by then inflation will have been resolved um, naturally or in some other way. So I, I totally agree with you about the branding. You know, Democrats wanted to be able to go campaign and say we passed the inflation reduction bill, right, and hope that nobody was paying attention to what was in it, which, you know, obviously belies the contempt that they have for their voters, you know, as if they don't know better. Um, But, you know, aside from the question of that branding that was, you know, just typical Democratic gaslighting, um, you know, what what is your take on what's in the bill? How do you feel about what made it in? Do you can you support these things, Robbie? I mean, no, but (laughs) I'm I'm sure. Well, like I said, I I do support the uh, the Medicare um, prescription drug negotiation. Absolutely. That seems like something that it doesn't seem like a, a conflict from my standpoint in terms of like libertarian views. It, that it's obviously a complicated policy question, but I yes, absolutely, the government should be able to negotiate to lower those prices. I mean, if we're especially if the government's going to subsidize all of them, why wouldn't we want those prices to be lower? It doesn't. It's it's just it's kind of it's just a giveaway in in terms of how it's structured now to big pharma. And yes, and I take the left's point, and and it's not just the left's point. A lot of libertarians make this point too. The kind of opportunity for corporatism, for cronyism, for, you know, these companies, the powerful companies and the drug companies being some of the most powerful lobbying uh, uh, influence peddlers that there are can, uh, you know, structure the U.S. government to uh, to subsidize their products or require their products to do all sorts of things. I, I think the left usually approaches these issues by saying, and, and that's why we need to you know, fight lobbying or they tax these corporations more or make them contribute more, whereas my solution tends to be, and that's why we need to uh, give the government less power to kind of, given that the government is the tool by which these corporations kind of inflict their will on everyone, so let's let's weaken the tool, and, and then, and, and that is my way of going about it. And on the other stuff, look, the, I don't know, the climate stuff seems, uh, seems both, very cronyist in some ways, like you know, subsidies for all these kinds of green companies, which are very you know, very cutting edge environmental technologies. I don't know how much the people are demand. Obviously, the people are not demanding them enough because we wouldn't need to subsidize them <laughs> if people were lining up to put solar panels on their houses. Now, probably what we could do is get rid of all the t- terrible regulations that make it more difficult for things for people to do things like put solar panels on your houses. Every time I hear from someone who tried to do this, it, it turns out there's a. And now these are often regulations at the local level, which can be just as annoying as as large federal regulations. But they find out that yeah, there's some uh, reason why. You have to get permission from the you know the town council or whoever the authority is to do it, and it's very it's very irritating. I certainly don't think the government should make it harder for people who care about the environment and want to you know spend their own money and, and invest in environmental strategies. That said, subsidizing these things to this extent is, I think, a, a lot trickier. Which I, and I get that climate change is an important thing that we need to combat, but uh, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it. To, at the and very where, least, mixed feelings. And where are you on the 15% minimum corporate tax? Do you believe that corporations should be paying zero in taxes? Where do you fall oh, you're on really, that? You're really trying to, <laughs> you're trying to twist the knife here. You're trying to uh, expose my absolute like zero tax agenda. Uh, I, I don't know that that 15% might be a reasonable 
uh, tax rate for these corporations. Um, yes, I want everyone, including corporations, everyone to pay as little taxes as possible, unleash the productive powers of the market to make our lives better. They pass these taxes along to everyone else. But honestly, the, the bigger taxes are not are probably not the main issue for a lot of these companies. It's the rate. What are the punitive regulations that make life harder for them to do business? For them to hire, make it harder for them to hire more people, or open new factories, or you know, do all of those things. Those are the things. The proactive measures by the government that we need to um, that we need to get out of the way so they can so they can create more value for the economy. Obviously, they do have to, yes, pay some amount of taxes. We do need to fund, you know, a, I, we fund a government that is, in my ideal world, much more minimal than the one we have currently. But you do have to fund some kind of government. And now, so much of what the government does, I would not have us do. And that's probably something that, you know, you and, and many of our, our left-leaning viewers would, would agree with that on some fronts. We want less funding for, you know, bombs, missiles, or guns going to Ukraine or, or wherever else we have inflicted our kind of military Footprint. Uh, we want less money for all that stuff. Less, you know, less money for the police to harass um, uh, property owners. Now there's a, there's a place for police certainly, but you know, for the for the SWAT team to break down your grandmother's door in the middle of the night because you know they have the it's a wrong door it's a wrong door raid or or, or some you know trivial uh, nonviolent non-threatening drug charge something like that. That stuff happens all the time. I want less funding for those kinds of government projects, and uh, and I suspect many of our viewers do as well, and probably probably you as well. But yeah, we do absolutely. have to. Have a government of a certain size, sure. I guess. <laughs> Glad to have uh, ripped that concession from oh. you, Robbie. <laughs> yeah, thank, thanks, thanks a lot for that, Bachi. But, but so, what's your impression overall of uh, you know of the provisions of the bill? Do you think this is going to help out uh, the working class, and this is you know this is really good for them, or are a lot of struggling people going to say, yeah, more more money for you know green energy subsidies? What does that do for me? It's complicated. I mean, I was really disappointed that, you know, when President Trump promised he was going to, you know, you know, force these companies to allow Medicare to negotiate lower prices, that that, that never happened on his watch. So I'm, I'm very happy. See, I totally agree with you. I think that's definitely going to help a lot of working class people. Um, obviously, I mean, we, we've talked about this a lot, but I think that the climate stuff is the exact opposite. You know, it's, you know, who has... Who, who is in the market for solar panels for their roof? A person who owns their own home, which as we talk about, you know, ad nauseum is something that is really out of reach for many, the vast majority mm -hmm. of Americans today, especially working class and middle class Americans, right? You know, a $12,000 rebate on an electric vehicle, who's that gonna help? Well, somebody who has $60,000 sitting in their bank account to spend on a Tesla, right? Like it's, so it's, you know, a lot, and then the the the, the sort of corporate welfare of, of it all, you know, giving, um, tax breaks to corporations um, for going green. I mean, to me, that's just, you know, with if you could have a, a much bigger impact on the environment by just banning uh, private jets, but they would never in a million years do that mm. because the Democrats base is like the private jet set, right? Like they love flying around in their private jets, like the number one, number two, you know, flyers of, 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 of private jets. There was a report last week, it was like Taylor Swift, Oprah Winfrey and Steven Spielberg, right? These are not Republicans, right? So, you know, so I, to me, it's sort of like this climate stuff often ends up being a form of class warfare where, you know, rich people get to feel, get high on their own, you know, supply, basically um, making zero sacrifices and then enforcing these sort of um, attacks on the working class. So I, I'm not sort of like a lot less excited about that, but I'm very excited about the provision um, to allow Medicare to negotiate drug prices. I'm excited 
about the money that's going to go to the IRS, hopefully to sort of get people at the top, not people at the bottom, as we discussed earlier today. And um, um, so I, I feel that this was a real achievement on behalf of the Democrats. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, so Bernie came in very upset, you know, saying this is going to do nothing right in classic Bernie fashion. And then the rest of the Democrats sort of shut down all of his amendments. Um, you know, people were saying people were criticizing both sides of that. Right. They were shutting down all of his proposed amendments, you know, for things that I think are really important, like adding, you know, dental care and, and, and vision care to, to Medicare and things like this. They were shutting them down because they were worried that any disturbance of the balance here would cost them a vote, which they needed every vote to pass this. You know, people were getting upset at both sides. But to me, like that, that this is just, this is what successful politicking looks like. Bernie shows up and says, we didn't go far enough, which is true. And everybody else says, yes, it's true. We'll get there, you know, somewhere else. Let's move this along incrementally. So I thought that was like, I was, you know, I was glad to see that like something is working in our government, right? Something is getting passed. And I think a lot of this stuff is very popular with the American people. Corporations making over a billion dollars in profits, like asking them to pay 15% in corporate tax. You know, I think most Americans are on board with that. Most Americans are definitely on board with negotiating drug mm-hmm. prices. Yeah, it has huge amounts of, of, of popularity. Exactly. So, you know, I, you know, it's a good day, I think. Hmm. Well, that's uh, that's a great opinion. I'm not sure about inflation <laughs> reduction, but we will see. And we'll have more rising right after this. CNN's Brian Stelter has questioned whether President Joe Biden might be forced to forgo re-election in 2024 because of the legal battles surrounding his son, Hunter Biden. This was in an interview with Michael LaRosa that took place about two weeks after LaRosa left his job as press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, according to Mediate. Let's take a listen. What about Hunter? Hunter, under federal investigation, charges could be coming at any time. This is not just a right-wing media story. This is a real problem mm-hmm. for the Bidens. Mm-hmm. Could he decide not to run for re-election, given his son? Look, they make, they make decisions as a family, and um, they will make that decision uh, when it's time. But do you, like you, said, talked, you, do you think they've talked about it yet? No. What about Hunter? Hunter, under federal investigation, charges could be coming at any time. This is not just a right-wing media Yeah, so it's very interesting that he acknowledges there, Brian Stelter does, that this is not just a right-wing media story. This is a legitimate news story, and it's not legitimate if it's just a right-wing story, I guess. Uh, Now, of course, Brian Stelter previously said, um, so so this is quoting from a Fox News article about this story, about Stelter's previous views on it. He said, for all we know, these emails were made up, or maybe some are real and some are fake. We don't know. We do know this is a classic example of the right-wing media machine. Um, so that's kind of how he portrayed it at one point, although, you know, I give him credit for acknowledging it uh, now. Maybe that's small credit. Uh, but, uh, I, uh, you know, Brian Stelter is often, uh, I think, the focal point of a lot of criticism of mainstream media. For my mind, he's, he's not ac- actually uh, the, the most, by any stretch of the imagination, most dishonest or, or something in mainstream media. I think, uh, I think he, I've criticized when he gets things wrong. We've criticized him on the show a lot. But I, I think he actually even does a better job of acknowledging um, uh, stories that are legitimate, probably more so than a lot of other mainstream people. But he's, he's the focal point 
um, obviously. And I've been on a show, you've been on a show as, as well. So he does give voice to criticisms of CNN and of the mainstream media, which is something almost no one else on that side does. So I, you know, I do always want to acknowledge that, uh, give credit where credit's due on that front. But, uh, but it, interesting to see him now really acknowledging that the Hunter Biden story, it's a real story and it is a problem for the Biden administration. Right. I mean, that's one thing you can say about Brian Stelter is like once it's on his show, that means it's in the mainstream of Democratic speak, right? Like that's what they're talking about. That's what they're debating. You know, to me, I would say I agree with everything you said, but um, I have a problem with when they won't admit that they were wrong about mm -hmm. something. You know, there's there's a lot of that going on in the liberal media to where they will simply shift to where the right was at, um, you know, all along without ever saying, here's why we got this wrong and here, here's how we're gonna make sure we don't do that again. So this is just another one of those cases, a lot like what happens with a lot of the COVID narrative to where, you know, liberals found their way to where mm -hmm. Republicans had been at all along without ever saying, we were wrong and you were right. And after here's going, why we made After that going mistake. through the infamous, um, Republicans pounce phase, right? First, first, right. The, first there's the <laughs> denial of the story. Then there's, well, it's a story, but it's only a story because Republicans are, you know, maliciously trying to inform you about it. So then we have a Republicans pounce uh, cycle. And then sometimes, as in this case, now there's actual acknowledgement that it is a story apart from the fact just that Republicans are trying to make it a story. And he got a very kind of characteristic non-answer from, uh, from uh, La Rosa there that they haven't decided or you know anything like that. I don't, uh, well, I'm curious what your take is. I guess I probably don't think that the Hunter Biden situation is going to be a significant deciding factor in where whether Biden runs for re-election. I, I guess I could be wrong about that, or maybe maybe if he's on the fence, it tips you it tips you toward not running for re-election. I, I I know I know Joe Biden really loves his son and is a family guy, and you know that's probably one of the more that's probably the, in, in fact the most endearing thing about Biden at this point. I don't really care for his policies, but you know I'm I'm glad he's he's tried to take care of his uh, his son who's had some real struggles. So maybe he, for the sake of family, would not run for re-election. But it is extraordinarily un hard for me to imagine. A, he's, still, he's still a political actor, a political figure, Joe Biden. And to, to forego political power for a family re is like increasingly rare. Uh, it's just, it's, it seems not super likely to me, but I, he, might have he might decide anyway not to seek re-election for health reasons, because of his age, because that's what he's being told to do by others in the party. And then uh, yeah, the fact that that helps him, I, I guess, with or might help Hunter Biden or might redirect the focus. Although r really, if Hunter Biden committed some crime, you wouldn't, th then that ends up being kind of a nefarious reason. I'm not running, I'm not running for re-election because that might help my son get away with, you know, whatever the underlying alleged criminal behavior is, as long as if it's influence peddling, if it's just, you know, the drug addiction or whatever, I don't think that should be criminal for anyone, not even, not Hunter Biden or anyone else. But if it's, it's the, it's the, the money and the influence peddling that I, from, from my standpoint is the kind of legitimate uh, point of contention or probing, not, you know, what people who's buying drugs or using drugs, I don't care about that. 
So my understanding was not that it would be as a sort of gift to take, you know, to Hunter to take care of him, but rather that it would just prove to be too much of a liability for Biden mm. to run again mm. with that hanging around his neck, which is a lot less generous reading than yours. Um, I will say the thing that I found most interesting about that um, interview was, um, you know, the, the statement that they do make decisions as a family, right? Because, of course, President Biden's whole defense against um, all of Hunter Biden's, you know, you know, nefarious his business dealings has been, well, I have not been involved in that. And of course, slowly but surely stuff has leaked out from the laptop, et cetera, of, you know, how much, in, you know, how involved he actually guy. was. The big guy, exactly. And so to hear somebody defend the family by saying they make decisions as a family, uh, that was sort of, you know, kind of corroborating what a lot of us have been suspecting. Do you, do you think Biden will on, is honestly thinking about not running uh, for re-election again. I because we're debating this a lot on the show. I'm kind of changing my mind a little bit. I really thought like there's no way he's not going to run because it would be so historically unpre- no one willingly gives up power. No one doesn't take a chance to be president if there's a good chance. You know, even if it's only a 40 percent chance or something, he's still got a 40 percent chance of being president again. That's four, you know, four flips of the coin out of 10. <laughs> you're reelected. Of course you go for that. Of course you go for that. But I don't know. More and more people who are who are not just you know playing the pundit game of saying crazy things and hoping they're right and then they'll sound smart and just pretending they didn't say it when they turn out to be wrong. More and more people who I, I, I feel are at least somewhat credible are raising the prospect that he really might not run for re-election. Uh, so uh, what do you think? Um, I think it's very important to keep in mind that uh, Joe Biden is the man who did not run against Hillary Clinton um, mm. in 2016 because he had just suffered this big loss. Um, this, 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 and I think also what he said was, you know, he had suffered this big loss. He, he was not in the mindset to do it, um, and he wanted the first woman president to be elected. So I, I think he is a man who does have a history of stepping aside. I, I totally agree with you. Most people don't give up power willingly, but he he does have that history of having done that. Um, you know, in terms of whether he's going to run again, he's having a really good few months right now. You know, he's he's getting he just got a version of Build Back Better passed, you know, the Chick, Chips Act, you know, where he's he's sort of got a, a bit of momentum now. I'm sure that's going to influence his decision. Um, I, I, I could imagine him not running. Um, I think especially if they if they can find a replacement for him, somebody that they think will be, you know, um, someone who they think will be more popular. You know, mm. Sherrod Brown didn't run in 2020 because um, the, 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 you know, the field was was uh, very uh, full. And also he's, you know, one of these people who just doesn't want to be president, you know, but I think he, he's a person who could definitely be corralled. And he's sort of one of those moderate uh, Democrats that still has some working class support. So, I mean, there's people that they're not speaking about yet that I think if they expressed interest um, might be, you know, compelling reasons for the president to not run again. I, I, I don't want to prognosticate because it's a fool's, uh, it's a fool's endeavor. But I could see both sides, like you. Mm. Well, the war between Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg <laughs> is just going to be scorched earth uh, if that happens. But uh, we shall see. More rising right after this. In the midst of the climate bill passing, Senator Marco Rubio pleaded with Congress to spend more money on urban crime. Let's watch. When it's happening, we have these beautiful cities that were once world-class cities that have become unlivable all over this country because we had these lunatic prosecutors that have decided they're not going to, the entire categories of crime they will not prosecute. That's the kind of stuff we should be working on here tonight, all night long. You're going to spend all night working on something, work on that. 
Don't waste time on stuff that doesn't matter to real people working every single day who are not going to be driving an electric car next year or the year after that. But they might get mugged. But they might be a victim of a violent crime. And so what this does is it sends to the Judiciary Committee and asks them, in three days, come back with some ideas about how you can spend just a little bit of these billions of dollars that we're throwing away on this garbage, how we can spend a little bit of that money to put criminals in jail so Americans no longer have to live in fear in their communities. Just last week, billionaire Democratic donor George Soros wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal titled Why I Support Reform Prosecutors. The article was published after San Francisco voters recalled soft-on-crime soft on district attorney Chesa Boudin. L.A. County is in the midst of a recall effort against another Soros-backed DA, George Gascon, and that Soros-backed terminology is something we want to discuss here. So he did get nearly $3 million in campaign funds from Soros, and in Manhattan, DA Alvin Bragg, who's come under fire for allowing criminals out of jail, he received a hefty $1 million from Soros. All in all, Soros gave nearly $30 million to left-wing DA candidates. So I think it's fair to point out. So Marco Rubio got some flack here. So he tweeted that clip we just played of him talking. And in the tweet, he captions it with, the Democrats just blocked my effort to try and force Soros-backed prosecutors to put dangerous criminals in jail. Then I'm seeing so many Democratic figures, uh, including Randy Weingarten, who's the teacher's union head. Uh, Jerry uh, Nadler uh, tweeted about it, uh, accusing... Rubio of kind of promoting an anti-Semitic uh, conspiracy theory or an using like coded anti-Semitic language. Um, I, I'm curious to know how you feel about this, Bacha. I don't think it's, I, look, certainly there can be uh, over, I guess, over attributing everything going on to kind of like Soros pulling the strings of everything that seems conspiratorial and is, is maybe being used uh, in some cases in service of like anti-Jewish animus. But in this case, he did. He is a major uh, campaign contributor to these reform-minded prosecutors. And so I don't, it, it's not, like, it's literally true to say Soros, uh, Soros back. The same way you would say, you know, Coke-funded or Coke-backed for a variety of political causes and initiatives that I myself support and, but, and have no problem, you know, being acknowledged as Coke-supported or Coke-backed. I know it's, in, I guess it's intended by, as a smear by some people who say that, but if, if it's literally true, I don't really see what the problem is. It's not anti-Semitic in those cases. You know, what do you think? I think what's anti-Semitic is to take one person and say they represent all the Jews, which is what the Democrats rushing to defend George Soros are doing, right? <laughs> there you go. All they're doing is trying to protect a gazillionaire from accountability. Like nothing mm -hmm. that is true can be anti-Semitic or racist. And, and, and that's really the problem here. As I say on this show all the time, scratch beneath the surface of any accusation of racism and you'll find the class divide. And that is what is happening here. Working class Americans, especially black working class Americans, are desperate for some kind of response to the crime that is incessant in their neighborhoods. Incessant. Yeah, we're in a crime rise right now. When that crime rise goes down, it will still be a total problem in poor black neighborhoods that no one cares about. And I applaud Senator Rubio for standing up for this because mostly there's a silence on this. There's a taboo on both sides. The liberals won't talk about it because it implicates them and the Republicans won't talk about it because like, what do they care what's happening in liberal cities, right? Like what do they mm -hmm. care what's happening in places that they have no control over? So I really applaud him for standing up and saying, billions and billions of dollars, can, can we not 
can we not spare some few millions to protect the lives of black Americans? I don't understand why it's so hard to say that. And yet, if you point that out, if you point out that blacks make 54% of the victims of murders, they'll call that racist, right? To even point that out is considered racist because they don't want to talk about the class divide that benefits them. Yeah, it's so true. And it's so frustrating and scary because, you know, we're in the midst of whatever is going on with crime in this country, antisocial behavior, you know, carjacking, stabbings, et cetera, um, just really bad stuff. And we don't want, look, I support, and I encourage everyone to read that the op-ed by Soros. I think it's interesting. Totally. And, and he's, you know, trying to make the case that we can still have uh, reform-minded prosecutors that can be okay and we can still actually confront crime and look and i want that to be true because you know i i, I don't want i don't want unnecessarily harsh you know an, an, uh, i don't want an unnecessarily harsh criminal justice system but at the same time we have to do something about what is going on in our cities the, the wholesale surrendering of public green spaces to tent cities to to homeless people who are in the midst of psychiatric problems and drug addiction uh, who are a threat to themselves and others who are accumulating trash uh, this is spreading it is totally out of control it's out of control in my city like never before it's gotten worse in uh, cities in california uh, it's it's a huge problem and then you, know, you just have the then the actual you know gun problems and gang problems in places like Chicago, Baltimore, Philadelphia. These things need to be brought under control. And I want to hear solutions that, you know, comport with a reform-minded uh, agenda, because I, I want a reform-minded agenda, but we still we have to do something or else the public appetite is, is going to go to a 90s perspective where, like, you know what, lock everyone up, throw away the key, yeah. don't, you know, we'll check back on these people in 20 and 30 years, maybe let them out then. Like that's going to be the attitude because that's that's going to be what the public wants if you can't come up with better you know better policies. But then but then I'm I'm always drawn back by what I see, you know, when I see things like what happened with Breonna Taylor, what happens with you know in so many communities where it's the no knock raids and SWAT teams for you know minor uh, drug nonviolent drug issues, uh, the harassing of people. And like, well, if that's what more policing is, and, and it's, but it's not going to solving more murders, right? You, 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 if you, they say they need more resources, but then they don't put those resources to the things people are actually worried about. So that's, that's, that's the issue from my perspective. Absolutely. It's murders, it's rape, it's sexual assault, yes. it's regular assault, um, carjacking, spiking. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to, to, to talk about what, when you talk to police officers, what they tell me all the time is the criminals know that the prosecutor has their back. Hmm. Police officers will tell you that they behave in that way when they're around cops. They behave in that way when they're committing crimes against, you know, other uh, vulnerable minorities. They know that the prosecutors in these liberal cities have their backs. And I, I, I love that you said you encourage people to read that Soros op-ed. I do, too, because it really I mean, I don't think he wrote it. It just sounds exactly like, you know, the kind of, you know, progressive pablum that, you know, you know, there exists, you know, you know, tens of thousands of, you know, NGO workers to write for him. Um, 
but it, but it really speaks to um, just a total absence of any kind of compassion for the victims of crime. And I, I you know, I, I just coming back to what we we started with, like nobody should be above criticism. No individual should be above criticism. Certainly, no financier billionaire who's impacting the lives of the American working class should be above criticism. It is absolutely appalling to see people like Randy Weingarten, you know, out there accusing people of anti-Semitism for standing up for black victims of crime. It's disgusting. We should, we, we have to say no to that. We have to stand up against that. Mm -hmm. Well, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made headlines actually last week after he suspended uh, what would also be described as a Soros-backed prosecutor in Florida. That's Andrew Warren, uh, who refused to enforce certain state laws. He then appeared on Tucker Carlson to discuss. Let's watch. No, you're right. But here's the here's what, what Soros is doing. It's actually smart on his part. They can't get these things enacted in a legislature where you're just going right. to let criminal run run. So what they do, he will get involved in these Democrat primaries in a Democrat area. He'll flush a million dollars to get the radical to win the primary. Then they usually win the general because of the party affiliation difference in the jurisdiction. So then you get him in there. And what they do is they want to change the criminal justice system through non-enforcement. So it's a total yeah. end run around our constitutional system. The results uh, obviously have been destructive around the country, uh, but it also really undermines the idea that ours is supposed to be a government of laws, not a government of individual men. So DeSantis uh, fired him, uh, and DeSantis obviously made, you know, made headlines, I remember, right at the very beginning of his uh, administration uh, when he took office. Um, when was that? Was that 2018? Oh, has it only been that long, 2016? Um, right, because he, well, he's, no, he's up for re-election now, so I think it's 2018. I'd have to check that. Anyway, he fired. One of his first acts was to fire um, the sheriff from the Parkland uh, mass shooting, the sheriff who was you know, more than anyone else, obviously not more than the shooter, but was personally responsible for the abject failures of law enforcement whose, whose, uh, whose sheriff's office had not properly trained um, uh, the school resource officers whose, who was war whose office was warned about the dangers that this individual, uh, I mean, every authority in the entire, <laughs> the entire state and the entire, the FBI was warned, didn't do anything as well. But, uh, you know, this, and then defiantly uh, clung, uh, clung to his position, ben, ben Israel, I believe was his name. Ron Israel? Ron Israel, maybe. Um, the sheriff of Parkland. He was fired by DeSantis on day one. And uh, so I certainly want more leeway to fire, you know, uh, state officials who screw up that and then are protected by the apparatus of the state because it's so hard in our vast governmental bureaucracies um, to get rid of uh, to get rid of bad people. Um, so that so I, I know I don't know as much about this specific case. I think it was um, was it abortion laws he was going to refuse to to enforce something like that. I'm, I'm not sure that it's necessarily proper for the governor to get involved in like every dispute at a more local level, but, uh, and right, and it was trans, uh, trans issues yeah. as well. Yeah. So, but I, I take uh, DeSantis's point in what, what he said in that clip with Tucker that like, look, you know, these are things where liberals are out of step, or progressives are out of step with what the people want, and they can't, you know, they can't get these things passed democratically. So they're kind of using the entrenched power in a lot of cases of the state, the state officials, bureaucrats, who are shielded actually from public accountability to do things the public that are not in the public's, uh, that the public doesn't agree with. So you can't, how can you say, 
you know, your big, the pro progressives are trying to say we're the big democracy people, but these, these are not things that were democratically decided on. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And um, I, I would love to see the Republicans become the side of getting corporate money out of politics. That would be amazing, <laughs> right? Um, I, I, I want I, something that really stood out to me um, in this clip with DeSantis is the, the difference between this clip and President Trump's American carnage speech. Um, you know, there's a real intelligence here to what DeSantis was saying, right? You know, looking at the forces at play here, how progressives are trying to enforce their will, its relationship to democracy, as opposed to someone like Trump, who just comes in and is like, they're shooting everybody, right? And they stole the election from me, right? Like all this sort of nonsense and this strum and drang, you know? Um, I, I think that that's going to be very, very appealing to a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle. Um, that sort of, um, you know, the, in, in some ways the message is the same, right? Yes. Like there is there is danger um, and we should be paying attention to it. But it's you, the messaging could not be more different, you know, and, um, and that really stood out to me. And I'm, I'm uh, interested to see where that goes. <laughs> You're absolutely right. And the messaging about those two, about Trump and DeSantis, is that Trump tweets, DeSantis does. And there's some mm -hmm. there's some truth to that. And that's certainly what uh, people who prefer people on the right who prefer DeSantis, which is most people in, in positions of power and influence in, in conservative media uh, are, are saying about the two because they vastly prefer that it'll be DeSantis, but um, we shall see. We will. Well, it was so great to be here with you, Robbie, and all of you listeners, and tomorrow, Bree will be back. Yes, we'll see you there. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.